Friends, this is the word of God, and it's given to you in love. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, that when they had been sent from the Pharisees, John parenthetically tells us, verse 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him before this purpose. I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. It remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, friends, stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're a community that centers our life around one very simple truth, that we do not have it all together. And John writes the book of John to help us, the people who don't have it all together, begin to learn that that's okay. Because you need to stop trying so cotton-picking hard to put your life back together because you're messing it up. And rely instead on one who knows the entire puzzle. And he, by his grace, is opening up your heart to understand the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's weird. I'm, 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 a, I'm the pastor of the church, but I'm just so amazingly emotional today because of the way that worship affects us. I was having a conversation just before worship today with somebody in our church, and they said, you know, I can, I can do without a.m. discipleship, 9 a.m. discipleship, whatever time it starts, 9 a.m. discipleship, but I just want to get to worship. I just want worship to shape me and mold me. 
And this morning we sang a song from the depths of woe that I think the Lord probably helped, even though I'd been a Christian for 10 years at that point, he may have helped open my heart to understand the gospel for the first time when in the Memorial Student Center in College Station, Texas, I heard a group of people sing that song. And then Praise to the Lord the Almighty was the song that my wife came down the aisle to at our wedding. And then, you know, we think about Madison Reedy, a girl many of us don't know, but a teenager who lived in Owasso, and some of us do know her. We had class with her, and she dies in a tragic car accident this week. And then a friend of Scott's and mine and Bonnie's and, and Lauren's, a guy who helped Lauren and I paint our house in Dallas, is a campus minister at San Diego State, um, or UCSB, UC, uh, University of California, Santa Barbara, and um, he gets cancer. He has four young kids, and, and um, Jameson's probably going to die this week. Life is short, and um, that's why we're here, and we need each other. And the amazing thing to me about John the Baptist is this dude was weird. I mean, he wore camel hair and a leather belt. Do you recognize any similarities? <laughs> but I think he had more hair than I did, right? He was a weird, eccentric dude. But the whole of his life, he modeled for what we so try to manifest in our life. He was an amazing picture of humility, which is why he's probably my favorite person in the New Testament. Because I know that I'm not humble. And John the Baptist shows us some pretty amazing things. I, I just want to open the text up for us and look at it together. Who is John the Baptist? What does John teach us? And how does he pave the way for Jesus? Who is John the Baptist? What does he teach us? And how does he pave the way for Jesus? Outside of Jesus Christ himself, there is no better picture of humility in the Bible. Jesus himself said, as your order of worship says in the preparation, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And only the one greater than John the Baptist could possibly speak that. Who is John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet who prepares us through repentance to meet Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, which may sound strange to your ears because he appears in the New Testament. But John follows the pattern of all the Old Testament prophets, and that he is, in fact, the last Old Testament prophet, even though he appears in the Gospels in the New Testament. Why? Because what was Jesus' role? Jesus' role was to fulfill all of the law. And John the Baptist, following Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah, John the Baptist comes upon the scene to call Israel to repentance. And to do so, John the Baptist gives us one final law of the Old Testament, if you will, of the Old Covenant, which is to be baptized as a sign of repentance, to be baptized. So here John is telling not only Gentile converts, and not just Jews who baptize themselves because of ritual purity, which was pretty common. John is saying, no, you need to be baptized as a sign of your repentance to the religious Jews. The Gentiles understood that you had to be baptized for repentance because it was part of their 
conversion process into Judaism. But Jews didn't think they needed repentance because they kept the law. And John says, there's one additional statute of the law you must keep. Be baptized for the repentance of your sins. Repentance is the heartbeat of all the Old Testament laws and you've missed it. We're adding the law. And so therefore, why did Jesus himself have to be baptized? Well, it was to relate to humanity, relate to the covenant community. Well, of course, yes. But the text says when John says, I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus says, yes, you should, because it is to what? To fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus, in being baptized, was fulfilling every jot and tittle of the Old Testament law. So though John the Baptist appears in the New Testament, he is the last Old Testament prophet. Second, John the Baptist wasn't just the final Old Testament prophet, but John the Baptist was a voice. John the Baptist's background is remarkable. This, he was a blue blood Jew. He was the son of a high priest, and he was born who, uh, of Elizabeth, who also was born uh, uh, into high, the high priestly line. So he's got double Levitical blood. He's, he's got high priest all over him. And yet he grows up in the wilderness of Judea. He comes, he comes in the 15th year of Tiberius in AD 27. He appears out of the wilderness preaching repentance of sins. Not to, not to all the sinners, the Gentiles. He comes straight for the religious churchgoers. And he says, you've missed it. You've tried so hard to keep your life straight by the law. But I'm telling you, the way you prepare for Christ is through repentance. The Messiah, the anointed one, is coming. Repent and be baptized. And people followed John the Baptist like crazy. People flocked to him. And 25 years, years later, we know that people still followed the teachings of John the Baptists. He still had disciples that followed him. In fact, Jesus' first two disciples, who we'll talk about next week, Andrew and Peter, who were they before they were disciples of Jesus? They were disciples of John the Baptist's. John the Baptist was magnetic for the large crowds that followed him. And when the Jews see this magnanimous teacher gathering these large crowds, they, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the member of the high council, sent uh, emissaries out to John. And verse 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed. The Greek is emphatic. He confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. I am not the Christ. They sent emissaries out of him. They sent priests, and they sent Levites. They sent the priests because the priests were the ones who were charged to determine whether a prophet was telling the truth or not. And you know what happens to prophets if they don't tell the truth, Right? They got the Levites with them to bring the heavy, and in their rucksack, they would have the stones that they would use to stone the prophets who proved to be false. And so the Levites were those who assisted the priests in the temple, and they were also the religious police who would travel with the, uh, the priests in order to help maintain order. And so here come the priests and the police to John. And they say, John, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not... The anointed one. 
Well, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, he said no. John the Baptist, it's interesting, probably didn't even, frankly, know exactly who he was or even really care because the angel prophesied at his birth that this is going to be the one who is to come. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts, it says in Luke chapter 1. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In Malachi 4, 5, at the end of the Old Testament, it said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He comes to prepare for you the kingdom through repentance of heart. And John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. I have come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And unbeknownst to John the Baptist, he himself was the one who followed in the footsteps of Elijah, whose name means Yahweh is God. And John the Baptist's entire ministry was as if to say, Jesus is here and he, he is God. He is the Messiah. Listen to him. So the priests say to John the Baptist, well, who are you? We've got to tell our boss something. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John quotes the, the passage that Marchandria read for us earlier in Isaiah 40. He said, I am the voice. Not the reality TV show you see during the weekday. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. I am the original voice, if you will. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In response to the leader's questions, John the Baptist claimed to be a voice. He claimed to be a prophet. But this wasn't a prophet that needed attention, that drew attention to himself. This was a prophet that's constantly deflecting people back to the Messiah. And in this way, John the Baptist is the example of the perfect preacher. Many of us are going to worship together, I pray, for 50 years. We're going to be at each other's funerals one day. But some of us may move. And when you move, you have to go through the agonizing transition of finding a new church. And when you look for a new church, look for somebody like John the Baptist. Look for somebody who have elders and deacons in their churches who are constantly deflecting the attention to themselves onto Christ. To say, he is the Messiah. We don't have it all together, nor is that even the point. But Jesus is the one you need. I long for our church to be that. I long for our church to be that. This is why I long for us to have a building. Not because we have a building, because I'm tired of coming to worship and having to focus on setup. I don't want a building because it establishes us as a church. We've been a church for a long time, friends. And the DNA and culture of our church will not change with the church building. But it will help us focus our attention and people's attention on the glory and grandeur of Jesus. And whatever we need to do to do that, may we be able to do it all that much quicker and better. John the Baptist was the final Old Testament prophet. John the Baptist was a voice to point us to Christ. 
John the Baptist significantly did not claim to be the word. John the Baptist claimed merely to be the voice. He didn't really even know who he was necessarily during this time of his ministry. But he was a voice crying out, see the word of God. See him. He is the one that puts your life back together. In the passage that he quoted from Isaiah, a little later in the passage is the passage I often quote or Scott often quotes after we read scripture. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. And that is what we all live for. Every single one of us have a direction that our lives point others toward, whether we want it to or not. It's true for us, regardless of, of, of what you may think your life points toward, we have a disposition that points other people toward what it is that we really value. May we be like John the Baptist, who becomes a voice, becomes a mirror, becomes an, just one echo of the beauty of the gospel so that others can see Christ. And may we find our satisfaction in him so that we can honestly affirm the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we do that together. Our chief end of man is not to make sure our Facebook profile looks great or our LinkedIn profile is updated or our Snapchat is full of the latest, greatest pictures. We live for such small things so often, don't we? John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. He was a voice. Lastly, John the Baptist was unworthy to untie the shoestrings of his Savior. Everybody seemed to have a bigger view of John than he did of himself, which is the irony of the life of John the Baptist. The angel, his parents, Jesus. I mean, this is the guy who knew about Christ in the womb. He leapt for joy in Elizabeth's womb. When people came to John, they wanted to know how he could have such single-minded devotion. And if he said, I am not the one you should be spending time with. The one who is greater than me is coming. The shoelaces of whom I am unworthy to untie. Hey, children, you know that in, when you come home from a really um, rainy day and your shoes are messy and your mom asks you to keep your shoes by the back door? You know, sometimes in the ancient Near East, the roads would be dusty and, and animals would use the bathroom on the roads and people would not be able to step around it and your feet would get really gross. And disciples would often do many things for their teachers, but there was one thing that was reserved for the servants of the house, and that was to undo the shoes. And here John the Baptist says, I would undo the shoes if I was even worthy of that, but I'm not. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus. In the moment that a Christian allows himself to be put on a pedestal, whether as a Bible study leader or as a deacon or as an elder, we're all going to become part of elder deacon training here for about the next 20 seconds. The moment you let yourself be put on a pedestal, you are dead meat. The irony of the Christian faith is that the more you grow in the gospel, the more broken you see that you are. And the more you yearn for people to see the beauty of that brokenness makes the glory of the gospel shine all the brighter. So you memorize the book of Romans. Wonderful. 
So you know all about Reformed theology, church history, philosophy. Wonderful. All of that can become like mortar to harden your heart if you're not melted by the fact that you are more broken than you can imagine, but you're also in Christ more loved than you could ever dream at the very same time. We may have the moral hegemony in culture right now in 2019, and we may, Christianity may provide the structural moral veneer of our culture today, but it may not always be the case, friends. And we are driven not because Christianity is the the majority of our culture, it's the accepted religion. We are driven by the good news that we are called out ones whose hearts have been opened to the gospel, that we have seen the glory and grandeur and finished work of God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. And we are melted by that good news and it moves us out to love and serve the world. One of the things that John the Baptist teaches us is what humility looks like in the church. And humility is the shy virtue, and I risk it leaving the building just by talking about her. Whenever you try to assess your own humility, you've already failed because you're proud about your assessment of humility. Humility is one of those indirect virtues that you catch when you give everything to Christ, when you focus upon his beauty you find that you indirectly have it. It's like the running mate. When you just go after Jesus, you'll find that humility will join you. But if you try to find them, they're going to hide behind the trees and the bushes. You're never going to find it. And there are two primary primary spiritual dynamics that I see to happen. This week I saw there's a bar in a study that showed the most biblically-minded cities in America. Do you see these? I thought Tulsa would be like in the top 10. I think they were like, do you see that, Scott? They were like 40-something, 30 or 40, 30 or 40. Oklahoma City was higher than we were. Kidding me? Pagans. (laughs) And like cities in the Southeast were were ranked toward the top. It was really interesting to me. There's a spiritual dynamic that's at work in our city, in all cities in America and around the world. And those spiritual dynamics basically divide us into two different groups. And ask me on a given day where I am between these two groups because I struggle and I go back and forth. The longer that I'm a Christian, the more I've seen that I go back and forth. And one is this moral performance dynamic that says, I obey and therefore God loves me because of my obedience. And then there's a grace dynamic that says, because I am loved and accepted, therefore I obey. And these two things, dynamics, go deep into your heart And all of your life, some of you have gone to church your entire life, and you have been, you've begun to believe that you are loved by Jesus because you first obey. Friends, that is not the gospel. That is far from the gospel. In fact, John the Baptist went to the people who believed that to say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they sent people out to stone him because they were so offended by his teaching. And when you try to grow with your, in relationship with Jesus, those two dynamics come to play because we all struggle being humble because we are so, um, we assess ourselves according to the standards with which we determine the successful life. 
and we subtly fall back, even in the very nature of our assessment, into a kind of moral performance dynamic. How am I doing? Does God, is God pleased with me? And instead, we ought to be children, sons and daughters of the living God, who say that because we're saved by grace, that is the engine that propels us to love and serve the world and to obey. And it actually creates fruit that's healthy and sustaining and sustainable rather than just staple apples to the apple tree of our life. Looks good for about three days and then it rots and you have to go work yourself up to find another apple to staple up there. It's exhausting and some of you know what I'm talking about. John the Baptist shows us the way of humility. Humility is crucial for us as Christians but it cannot be taught. It can only be received indirectly. And the teaching seems um, simple and obvious. And the problem is it takes great humility to understand humility. And it takes even more to resist the pride that comes so naturally with a discussion on the topic. C.S. Lewis once memorably said that... um, Humility is a Christian not thinking less of himself, but thinking about himself less. That's true. It's no longer always noticing yourself and how you're doing and how you're being treated. It is a kind of blessed self-forgetfulness. Wouldn't that be wonderful? How's your practice with social media? Is that helping you become blessedly self-forgetful? Social media is a great thing. It's a part of our life. But do you, do, do you use it in such a way as to bring joy, deep joy to your life, or do you do it as a way to um, measure your envy of others? If our confidence is based not on our performance but on the love of Christ, we are freed from having always to be looking at ourselves. Our sin was so great that nothing less than the death of Jesus could save us. He had to die for us. But his love for us was so great that, friends, he was glad to do it. And when you understand the grace of the gospel, you're able to be able to say, yes, I am broken. But also it gives you a backbone to stand up in the midst of criticism and not let it crush you and say, I hear that criticism. And I'll assess whether there's even a small amount of truth to it. And I'll hear it. And I'll learn from it. But it doesn't shape my identity because my identity is fixed in the heavens because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be great if we became less self-defensive? Make a beautiful church. John the Baptist says, look at verse 29. He says, here's the secret. You want to grow in humility? Then look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 29 is a verse that is in the bulletin Um, for families to memorize this month. It's an amazing verse. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When you think about the Lamb of God, we immediately think about the Old Testament when the Passover lambs were brought together in Exodus uh, chapter 12. It says, Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then He and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each eat, and make your count for the lamb. 
And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they take the blood of the lamb, and they cover it over their doorposts, so the angel of death would pass over that family's house, and they would be saved. And here John the Baptist is saying, the true Passover lamb has come. The sacrificial lamb for us, do you see him? But he didn't just mean that Jesus was a sacrificial lamb because at that point in time, they would have heard the lamb of God and they would have thought of judgment. They would have thought of all the old intertestamental Jewish writings that says that the lamb of God is the conquering lamb who will come and he will conquer all the others around him, all the other gods and lesser um, uh, uh, and all the sinners, and he will be the one that is raised victorious. Not just the sacrificial lamb, but also the conquering lamb who will come. In Matthew three twelve, it says, his winnowing fork will be in his hand. This is, Matthew tells us more of what John would say. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here comes the lamb of God, the conquering lamb who brings judgment. So when we see, behold, the Lamb of God, John meant that Jesus was both the apocalyptic Lamb who is coming to conquer all of sin and death once for all and also the sacrificial Lamb who enabled it to happen. Jesus is holiness and grace together. In him, both of those kiss, righteousness and peace. And he says, he comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, people love to debate what the world means here. Let me just say that in a general way, the death of Jesus has benefited all of the world, all humanity. But in a specific salvific sense, when you see the word world there, it refers to those who place their faith in Christ. In 1988, the Olympics had the theme... Um, and Seoul, the Olympics, first Olympics I remember, the, the theme of it was the doorstep to the world. And at the opening ceremonies, all the people marched in from all over the world. And what did the world mean in that context? Did it mean that every person in the world walked through the gates of opening ceremonies? No, it means that there was a tribe representative. There were a representative from every people group in the nations at the Olympics, walking through. And in the same way, when it says he died for the world, it means that he died for the people who would believe in him, which would be one from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then John, almost as if to add commentary, when um, the very end of the passage after John welcomes Jesus and he says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I didn't even know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing. And God said, the one on whom my spirit descends and remains, he is going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And then John adds that he said, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Son of God would, is the um, term that Jesus uses of himself more than any other. 16 times in John, Jesus is called the Son of Man, Son of God. Jesus is the one who provides for us everything we couldn't possibly provide in of ourselves. 
He is the one who sat at the Father's right hand with him for all eternity. Who gave up his pleasure with the Father to come to earth to live a life that we couldn't live and die a death we should have died. And Jesus, the Son of God, is the one that you and I both need. He is how we're shaped and how we're made more humble. He is the one who melts our pride. He is the one that reminds us that here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Much like John the Baptist, you may be a blue blood Christian like he was. But you need to have the faith that John the Baptist had to turn from the mirror of introspection and look at Christ. And that faith that you so long for comes by seeing Jesus. And those of you who haven't yet placed your faith in him, today is the day of salvation for you. Christ is here. He's for you. Candles are lit for people whose lives have been passed away, who have passed away. Life is a vapor. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God who died and rose for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, we crown you the Lord of life who triumphed over the grave and you rose victorious in the strife of those you came to save. Your glories now we sing who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Amen.